85% of daily fantasy sports players lose. Don't be surprised, it's rigged. You're playing against thousands of lineups and experts with more tools and time. Stat Hero is the first ever daily fantasy sports book that gives the player the advantage. Here's how it works Stat Hero shows you their lineups and dares you to beat them. It's you versus the house in a head to head matchup. You name your stakes and winner takes all. So go to stathero.com slash capspace. You can sign up for free. And right now you get 300% back on your first play. That's stathero.com slash capspace. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. All right, this is the last winner in our listener topic bracket. This one is kind of a sad topic, but it's one that people were really interested in. This was actually two kind of sad topics. One that got defeated was the best teams to never win a championship. And then this one was the best players who never were. Players who just, for whatever reason, seem like they're on a great path. And then whether it was injuries or tragedy, just were not able to become the players that it looked like and that we hoped that they could be. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone, please uh, give us a share on social media if you really enjoy this if you have anyone that you think should have been in here that we should have talked about feel free to tweet us at nate duncan nba at danny larue so uh our format here i think we're just gonna i don't know if we'll end up picking a top three let's just see how long it takes us to go through talking about everyone uh but each of us are just gonna mention some players that we thought uh fall into this category so i'll give you the first selection danny I, th- I think we could kind of talk about two players in sequence because there are only, amazingly enough, from my going through the list, and you are more of a basketball historian than I am because I didn't get into it until late, and I've you know I've I've done some digging, but not a, not as much as some others. And there are only two players that won league MVP, regular season MVP, that really had a true side tracking of their career due to injuries, and those are Bill Walton and Derrick Rose, one of the current vintage, one one significantly older. And so let's start with Walton. Walton was one of the greatest college players of all time. Comes into the pros and then has has a strong has a, when he's healthy has a has a strong first few years. And then in seventy six seventy seven, so that's Walton's third year, though he's twenty four because he played so long at UCLA. Walton is the MVP of the finals. The Blazers win the championship that year and then the 77 78 season happens yeah and his struggles with injury were chronicled in certainly a top five basketball book ever the breaks of the game and he ends up even suing portland's medical staff he breaks his foot there i think there were 50 and 10 when he breaks his foot in 77 78 he only played 58 games and wins the mvp anyway that blazers team was probably the most dominant team in the last five years of the 70s which was basically a a period of unprecedented parity they had won the year before but it had kind of been uh plucky underdogs then they're even better the next year and then walton injures his foot he's getting pain-killing injections in his foot to try and play in the playoffs he's unable to do so effectively and ultimately did not play at all the next year it's loses confidence in the organization asks for a trade plays only 14 games the next year with the clippers two more years where he doesn't play at all he's now 30 another couple of years three more with the clippers he actually gets up to 67 games and 37 starts as a 32 year old in 84 85 and then he did have one quick second act with 
the Celtics in 85-86. He plays a career-high 80 games his only season. Wins six men of career. the year. Yeah, yeah, where he played more than 67 games. That's one of the greatest teams of all time. He's the backup center, only 19 minutes a game. And then the season after that, he's basically just in street clothes the whole season, only 10, 10 games, another foot injury, and then he uh, is under contract, but it doesn't play in 87-88 and is forced to retire. So clearly, uh, you know, he had a Hall of Fame career anyway, and I think there's a acknowledgement of what he could have been. He was so awesome in those 77 finals. But I mean, he's got to be up near the top of the list, especially when you saw the potential that he had in college. I mean, even, you know, his first two years in the league, he's playing 35 and 51 games yeah. uh, for, for Portland. Yeah, I mean, until that eight, until that 85-86 year with the Celtics, even the years preceding, he never played more than 65 games the year that the year that they won the title and then he gets up to 67, I guess that last year as the Clippers. Here were his stats for that 58 game season where he wins the MVP. 19 points, 13.2 rebounds, 5 assists, 2.5 blocks and a steal per game on the Blazers, the best team in the league. And he wins the MVP over George Gervin and David Thompson, somebody who we'll, t- we'll talk about a little bit later. And to win it only playing 58 games, the other two played, I think, in the 80s. Uh, it's a statement of just how great Walton was in that in those minutes. And and just just a really impressive player. You know, it, it, it's the league has changed so much than then, but I think we could still, since then, but we could still appreciate the dominance that Walton showed as a professional. Yeah, and you know, he wasn't that ridiculous. He was an unbelievable rebounder on the defensive glass. Never really that ridiculous as an offensive rebounder. Liked to play a little bit more away from the hoop. Uh, excellent passer for the time. Very high assist numbers for a, a center back then. More of a positional defender. He blocked some shots, but it wasn't wasn't like just absolutely ridiculous shot blocking domination. Had, had a lot of turnovers too. And he wasn't, you know, the the guy that oh they're going to throw the ball to him on the low block and, and he's going to do everything they the offense ran through him but he was more setting guys up moving the ball trying to get this team play ethos so it's i mean we see this a lot because i may be a little bit of a naysayer on some of these i don't think i am with walton of just like okay these guys take on these legendary statuses because they played well for a time and then they got hurt and it's like you know they, people they just, never they never got a chance for their for to be like exposed or whatever you know like yeah well, and it's just easy for people to be like, oh, you didn't see this guy play. He was going to have this meteoric rise. Like, nobody knows for sure where where someone's career is going necessarily. But, uh, no, I mean, that's one's clearly where he's already the best player, deserving MVP, playing at a championship level. The only other... And regular season MVP to really have their career sidetracked with injuries during you know during the prime because you know Magic had the HIV test and Bird and has HIV and and Larry Bird had the back stuff but that was really at a different point in their careers than Derrick Rose. Rose wins the. 2010-2011 MVP, his age 22 season, his third season in the NBA with the Chicago Bulls, 25 points, 7.7 rebound, 7.7 assists, four rebounds. And while at least one of the two of us, but I believe both of us, don't think that he was the deserving MVP that year, he was still an absolute force in the league and uh, the centerpiece of those of those Bulls teams. And then just it all fell off the track so 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 quickly after that yeah and growing up in chicago obviously i i was a bulls fan i didn't live in chicago during that time but i followed them more closely i i could still probably be classified as a fan at that time i was definitely rooting for them in the conference finals against the heat in 2011 and he makes the all-star team the next year as well but then suffers the torn acl in, in game one Oh wait! Can I can I tell a quick class. can I tell a quick story? I, I don't think I've ever yeah. told this on the podcast. 
I covered the 2011 All-Star Game, and that was, I believe it was in LA. It was one of the first big events that I did as a professional, and as a, as a, as a media member. And the way they do All-Star is they do a scrum of the whole conference. And you have 15, 20 minutes, whatever it is. And you can go to whoever you want. And so I generally, I knew that if I went over to LeBron or somebody else like that, you know, maybe you get in one question. I was the only person with Derrick Rose. We talked for 10 minutes and then he wins the MVP that season. It was amazing. Yeah, I mean, the Bulls didn't have, they had a really tough schedule in the beginning and Carlos Boozer was injured. So they didn't, they started like 500 or something over their first maybe 16 game, but then they really came on and, and led the league in wins. But so Rose to me, yeah, I don't know that he was the best player in 2011. There wasn't, you know, LeBron really had it down year statistically. Miami kind of disappointed a little bit. That's why he didn't win it. But it wasn't like an obvious statistical case for LeBron that year compared to the way it had been in Cleveland. So I'm say Dwight Howard should have won it that year as well um so I don't think it was like a crazy MVP he definitely was not the best player at that time um but the other thing about him is I think that he was because he was pretty reliant on athleticism he wasn't a great shooter um that was one of the things that really abandoned him for like three or four years as he tried to make the comeback was uh, his shooting but especially from three-point range he wasn't a great shooter so I think he would have probably had a peak you know around like 24 or 25 he's 23 when he got hurt um we may have seen pretty close to the best of him uh you know he wasn't an amazing passer i think he could have gotten better there also if he had as the league opened up a little bit more he never played with any kind of a stretch four when he was any good um so so that was uh, he didn't really get to play in a spread pick and roll system they definitely gave him a lot of pick and roll but the the floor wasn't space for him um so and i think the guy that we see now in detroit this year i mean it was only 26 minutes a game but that guy is actually kind of relatively close to what i would have thought Derek rose would have evolved into at at age 31 in the end if he had stayed healthy but let's not forget that he basically had you know he had one year with the bulls where he uh 14 15 where he also had another injury came back right before the playoffs it had a couple playoff moments he hit like a banked in three to, to beat the Cavs in game three of that series they end up losing in six in ignominious fashion but i i think he you know certainly would have been a hall of famer uh certainly it would have been in contention for all nba teams i don't think he ever would have made it to being like the best player in the nba but it certainly you know th- those bulls teams would have been right up there competing in the east with Miami they would have been at least the second best team in the east well, and it also, as you kind of got in, gone to a little bit, seeing how the par- the parallel to be to some extent is Russell Westbrook. Seeing how the league opened up would have ch- would have made life easier on Rose. You know, I I think that he could he could have kind of maybe bought an extra couple of years that way by having a little bit more space for. He was such a force athletically, but also with Rose, while you couldn't have expected the severity of injuries that happened, and that's why he's in this what if category. The way he played, it always seemed like he was going to have some sort of you know he fell so hard so often that I was always I was worried about injuries you know his his rookie year like that was just and I saw him play at Memphis I saw him play in person when he was at Memphis and I think that it, there was that little element of concern that he was going to like but he played you know 81 78 81 in, in in the three years leading up to that MVP season yeah but Rose certainly was a unique athlete and there's no question that after the two knee injuries that he had because first it was the ACL and I think even after he came back the next year 
he really was struggling in particular with his jump shot he didn't have the same level of abandon or athleticism or the same explosion off the dribble either um even when he came back at the start of 13 14 and then he suffers the meniscus injury and has to get a, a meniscus repair and, and misses 13 14 as well uh and then when he came back it's still not close to the same player and in particular i thought the fact that he just couldn't make a jump shot he just seemed to never have his legs under him after that and you know didn't have the same explosion at the rim too i mean he, he you never saw the type of dunks that he had before the injury afterwards or, or some of the incre- crazy acrobatic finishes at the rim. he clearly was a, a different player I've been working with Indochino since way back in 2015. They outfitted my wedding with a tuxedo and sport coats for my groomsmen. I've got a number of suits from them as well. There's nothing like that feeling of knowing that your clothes just fit perfectly and you're not going to get that at some store. You're not going to get that off the rack. Yeah, they say that they can customize it for you, but why should you start with something that's made for someone else and get them to try to make it fit you? Instead, Indochino makes stuff for you that fits perfectly whether it's custom fitted suits shirts casual wear and more it's all at surprisingly affordable prices their suits start at just 399 dollars with all customizations included each piece is made your exact measurements you can customize every detail the fabric the lapel the monogram they've got awesome statement linings as well whether you want to go into one of their many north american showrooms or book a virtual style consultation just go to indochino.com and you can get 50 dollars off any purchase of 399 dollars or more by using the code capspace at checkout easy to remember capspace which i put all the time around the program that's 50 dollars off a purchase of 399 dollars or more at indochino i-n-d-o-c-h-i-n-o indochino.com promo code capspace don't forget that capspace code to let them know you came from us um let's talk about this guy because you told me that he is the best college player that you had ever seen, and that's Greg Oden. Best I ever saw in person. Yeah, I yeah. I was I was in Atlanta for the Final Four that they played in against against Florida, and and then I think it was Georgetown in the first round. And Odin defensively, he was the the archetype of what I valued defensively. He seemed like he was everywhere to block shots and deter shots, kind of like what we've seen with Rudy Gobert. But he was also a wonderful rebounder. And then offensively, it was more of a functional, a little bit robotic post-up game, but I did really like his touch. And I think that the sport would have moved away, you know, like the the way the league was going would have moved away a little bit from Odin. But as we've seen with Gobert, the best players can still work really well. And I, I remember just because he he was playing. I mean, that they lost to Florida in that in that and that Florida team was monstrous. That was Noah Horford, Corey Brewer. Do, do you remember the missed dunk that he had? Yeah, in that Florida game. Yeah. My friends and I almost died. <laughs> it was like you, you couldn't believe what like he he had these he had these moments. Like he wasn't an athlete, but he was just big and 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 strong and moved pretty well for his like you know. I, I, I mean, I I thought it, he was definitely like well above average as an athlete when he was in college. Yeah, I guess um, that yeah before before things started sidetracking him. So yeah, like, and and for me, part of it is that I was too lower on Durant than I should have been like that I, I admit my mistake there I didn't believe that his scoring was necessarily going to translate and that was totally wrong but even if I, I honestly think knowing what I knew then if I had been higher on Durant I still would have had Odin up there and I believed at that time that you know center defense is, is just so central and that there have been a lot of pro- prolific scores that didn't work and Durant is special and, and I, I should have seen more of that but he was such a phenomenal phenomenal player and we saw little flashes of it in the NBA but never got to see it in its entirety yeah odin was 
I think many people at the time would have said that he was one of the greatest high school basketball players ever. Maybe not the greatest prospect ever, but just in terms of the amount of winning that like his AAU team did, for example. That AAU team was ridiculous, by the way. Yeah. Um, you know, he played with Mike Conley uh, among... And Eric like, Gordon, Eric Gordon I was on that team too. Um, it, just a, a crazy team. And he didn't play, I think, like maybe the first 10, 15 games of his college freshman season because he had uh, a broken wrist. And he comes in, he was basically playing left-handed most of the season. We never really got him to shoot. I think he was even shooting his free throws. The opposite hand, he was. Left-handed um, for a time. And then he started to maybe shoot a little with the rep. But we never, we never really got to see what his level of just like offensive domination was. Like, I didn't get the impression that he was going to be... Now, maybe he would have developed it. But he had never really shown the ability of like, okay, throw it into the post. And, you know, it's college basketball too. Like, it doesn't work the same way at as the NBA, but we're just going to throw it to this guy and he's going to create offense, you know, the way maybe like a Tim Duncan would, um, you know, he didn't really appear to have any kind of range outside the immediate basket area. So those are my questions about it. I think it, he had never gotten injured. And then it, even if you're thinking of the Greg Oden who played that one year with the Blazers, and, and by the way, his NBA career with the Blazers totaled essentially, it was 82 games over two seasons. Um, he really had put on a bunch of weight by that point. He wasn't nearly as mobile or spry. And I think he'd had microfracture surgery is what he had the, the first year, right? And then he had the fractured kneecap the second year. That sounds and, right. And then, yeah. And then I think he had to have another microfracture surgery later on. He had a very brief cameo only 23 games with the 13 14 heat but didn't really figure for them and so i think he wasn't he was still very effective the defensive numbers with him on the floor weren't like amazing they're actually worse defensively when he was on the floor on that portland team and but he didn't have the same level of athleticism either laterally or in terms of explosion he was an unbelievable rebounder like just crazy offensive rebound numbers that drove a lot of his offense and he had 65 percent true shooting and 23 per you know i think he could have been like an unbelievable pick and roll center if he had stayed healthy so the i think he would have been i don't know that he would have been an all-time great though i i think he could have but he could have been somewhere along the lines of like a dwight howard rudy gobert you know like his offense i could see being kind of in between where those two guys were howard at his best um you know but not quite like a david robinson tim duncan type of player yeah, I, I I think that's fair. Um, I remember, you know, he he was a very he was a different defensive yeah. player than Dwight Howard. But I saw, you know, the overall level of defensive I, impact as being yeah. similar. The, I mean, the the block percentage, eight percent block rate in that second year uh, when he he was uh, he only played twenty one games, but he was really on fire that year. Um, do you want do you want to go to his his haunting teammate? That um, I mean. I, I say that Greg Oden is the greatest college player I saw in person, but the one I saw the most in person who was great was Brandon Roy because he was at UW when I was at UCLA, and then he sets you know he's amazing as as a Blazer early on and gets all the way up to um, he was averaging like in the low twenties point points per game gets uh, two All NBA team he's second team in in 09 and then third team in twenty ten and then just just can't stay healthy after that. 
Yeah, this is another one where in his knees were supposedly a major, major problem before even he was drafted. Yeah, at, at, had, in college they were. Yeah, yeah, people had an understanding that he had a, a pretty limited shelf life. Best season was 08-09 with uh, 57% true shooting, which really meant something for a guard at that point. Uh, 24 PER, excellent playmaker as well. Had a really good ISO game. He, he wasn't the absolute quickest, but he also had like a lot of explosion off two feet. He got. He actually had a was listed as a 40 inch vertical he wasn't quite the athlete that you know someone like a kobe bryant was at that time uh, but it was still a, a very good athlete and it had an excellent jump shot good distributor you know I, I think he it would have been interesting to see what he and lamarcus aldridge and odin all could have accomplished together it, it had they all stayed healthy as it turned out it, they went a different direction and they really cratered in a couple of years and they got dame lillard and instead aldridge ends up leaving but uh yeah he made three all-star teams and but basically was done after age 25 though we should note that the blazers didn't draft damian lillard with their own pick they drafted with the nets pick because of one of the stupidest trades in the history of the league yeah although the part of the reason they traded gerald wallace was because they sure. realized they weren't going but yeah no, that, that is a good distinction um yeah so i mean i, I think he would have i don't know that he would have changed the landscape of the league like i think he basically you know at the point that he was I don't think he had like a ton more growth to get. You know, maybe he could have gotten a little bit better as a shooter. Like, I, I think Roy would have, what what makes him so tantalizing to me is also that I thought he slotted in well as a, you know, like a dominant complimentary player. And Portland had the pieces to make that work. You know, that if if he and Odin and LaMarcus had, had if that had been their core and they'd been healthy enough, I think they could have competed for, you know, so that would have been in like the early 20, like early 2010 or thereabouts like yeah. they would they could have competed in the western conference maybe gotten to a finals maybe maybe even won a title yeah and he's known as the three-point revolution came along you know he's playing for nate mcmillan at, at that time he's not a big three-pointers guy uh you know he's taking 40 percent of his shots as long twos and maybe that could have changed as time went on because he was an excellent three-point shooter. he was shooting uh yeah, he made 38 uh, uh, percent his, yeah. his best year he made 38 but i thought that was a little bit aberrational yeah yeah you're right i mean i think he was more in the in the 35 percent range but he was taking some tough shots um yeah i mean i do agree with you as far as like he could have been a really nice second banana yeah well and and something you, you brandon roy years and years ago is what like, kind of thinking back to me as an analyst like he was one of the first players i noticed that his his field goal percentage dropped because he was the guy who had the ball in his hands for all those late clock shot opportunities and i remember thinking about that and he was one of the first players i really considered was like oh yeah that's something that you should really think about in terms of whether somebody has a disproportionate amount of those kinds of shots like unassisted self-created uh let's go to grant hill i i think that hill is an important part of this conversation another player like so many of the ones that we've already talked about and will talk about a dominant college player was was so good at duke and with Grant Hill more so than Brandon Roy and some of the others, we got to see a little bit of where things were going. He was, you know, the 97, 96, 97, 97, 98. And we, we, you know, he was averaging over 20 points a game. But also, like, when you, when you look at it, kind of using some of the modern advanced stats, let's look at 97, at 96, 97, 97, 98. 28 usage. 36% assist percentage, the basketball reference version, and then 27 usage, 31.5 assist percentage those two years on the Pistons. Well, and can you name anyone else who was a teammate of his with the, the Pistons in the late 1990s when they had a couple of games when they or a couple of seasons where they won over 50 games? I wasn't watching much then, but no. <laughs> <laughs> uh jerry stackhouse i think played with him maybe like one of those years i want to say um 
but yeah i mean it was like they had terry mills as a stretch big and uh i think that they signed the uh the late uh bison daylay at one point later on in that i mean he was uh and then hill famously age 27 plays in the playoffs on a broken foot he had never gotten hurt before this and plays in the playoffs basically on a broken foot a broken ankle and then leaves detroit signs with orlando it's actually kind of almost kevin durant like in some ways where he gets has this career altering injury and then moves on to sign with another team and then he just was never the same hopefully that won't be the case for durant but i mean he definitely tried to gut it out in you know like a first round playoff loss uh the lockout at the no i'm sorry that was it wasn't the lockout it was the season after that and then he was never the same now worth noting he's 27 he he would have been joining tracy mcgrady who as it turned and tim duncan was maybe supposed to join them in orlando mcgrady was like the backup option behind tim duncan and nobody knew that mcgrady was going to be as good as he was and if he and hill had been together i mean that could have been you know basically maybe the third best combination of wing players ever behind at least in the modern era behind jordan and pippen and lebron and wade um it would have been unbelievable and he was just he both those guys were pretty good passers and but he just i mean it, this was one where I mean, he really was never the same guy even close to it again he had a second act or a third act maybe you might say in phoenix where they kind of were actually able to get his body right that's where aaron nelson uh found a, a lot of his fame was helping to get grant hill and Shaq right in the late 2000s and he signs there at age 35 and then he has three four years in a row where he finally stays healthy after he had had you know maybe two years where he was over 70 games in or or over 60 games in orlando yeah and, um, and the other ones were you know mostly in the 20s i mean and now so he never really shot threes but he had a devastating crossover his ball handling and quickness at that size and obviously outstanding vision as well i mean it's just women interesting to see how he aged um you know he was a very smart player but and he played more off the ball in phoenix he was miscast as like a defensive stopper as a 37 year old he's like trying to guard kobe bryant in the conference finals that didn't go too well um but i, I would have been interested to see how his game would have evolved as he'd gotten older how long could he have gone on as one of the primary players but i mean he was and you could definitely make an argument that he was better than Scottie Pippen when he was healthy. Better offensive player, I think, pretty clearly than Scottie Pippen. Not as good defense. Yeah, I mean, and and it is it is good to note. I mean, Hill that it was really that age twenty seven season that was his last full strength one, but he'd already made five all nba teams all second or first team which is pretty pretty incredible and in one rookie of the year cut that that co-rookie of the year with jason kidd and so we got to see more like if you compare grant hill to let's say Derek rose we got to see more of grant hill and it's it's fair to argue that there wasn't that much more you know a lot of players you know can peak around that range of age 27 but he could have had a more sustained career and he did make the hall of fame but it could have been like a a more full-fledged hall of fame career than it was so this is what i really wanted to talk about Arvidas Sabonis he gets talked about all the time under this he didn't come to the NBA until age 30 at that point he is kind of a you know this 7-3 maybe even like 325 350 pound behemoth although worth noting that like Shaq still was just like completely dominated him physically uh when he was in the NBA but he, he was still huge you know he'd take threes he had this interesting like flat arced jumper but he he could stand out there at the top very adventurous passer one of the best passing centers ever had a, a sweeping hook shot in the lane he could kind of turn right shoulder he wasn't as comfortable with that he would turn right shoulder and just kind of force it in because he was 7-3 and it was huge he could do that uh but that of 
course was the vastly diminished Sabonis he played even going back to like the 92 Lithuanian national team when they play against the dream team in the semifinals he, he's still pretty limited at that point it, by then he'd had all sorts of foot ankle and knee injuries he tears his Achilles at age 22 in 1986 shortly after he plays a, a game of the goodwill games against david robinson which I'll, I'll talk about in a little bit and he was never really quite the same mobility i mean if you go look at the film of him in 85 86 he's 7'3 but he probably weighs maybe in the 250 range still pretty relatively stout for a big man of that age but had the mobility could run the floor still had the imaginative passing was uh working on some skill development you know, he didn't really have an amazing like turnaround jumper game uh but he really he had a great feel for cutting he was huge he could get his body into guys get deep seals in the lane uh he put, was good at inside out passing as well the soviets uh, played that way shooting more three-pointers even more of an international style at that point and so he plays against david robinson who's a little bit younger than him in that 1986 game i actually went back and watched some of it if you want to see more of it ben taylor actually did a piece on, on his patreon which i recommend you guys sign up for where he went through the video of it and narrates it but uh Sabonis you know would we have been talking about an absolute all-time great you know I'm not sure about that I mean you never know with someone of that I mean he got outplayed by Robinson in that game and Robinson was younger than him at the time but David Robinson is also an all-time great he's a top 20 player of all time according to some people and you know I think he at a minimum would have been had he come to the NBA and not gotten injured would have been you know a 10-time all-star type of player you know not not maybe as good as like Akeem or David David Robinson but maybe more in the Patrick Ewing level and he was able to do more defensively with his mobility at that point he, he could jump he would dunk on you had like a, a couple of nasty tip dunks like right on David Robinson's back in that game um so he had a lot more athleticism he wasn't like he wasn't quite the athlete that David Robinson was but he also was 7'3 and he was huge and he could really affect shots his defensive awareness was like okay at that time but he's, he's 22 and he's been coached by uh you know hadn't had NBA coaching at that time either so I, I think he would have clearly been a a regular all-star at a minimum yeah and and it would have been fun to see somebody like that in, in the league too. So I, I've, I haven't yeah. watched as much Sabonis as I want to, but his passing and just having having somebody else influential who yeah. who could do I, that. I, I mean, like a, a bigger Bill Walton. You know, that yeah. might have been. He, he could have even been at like that type of level. I don't know that he would have been just the most dominating scorer. Uh, but his all around game was outstanding. Even if you look at some of the plus minus stuff from his time in Portland, he was still he comes off very well and is is playing at even maybe close to an all-star level at least on a per play basis he wasn't able to play that many minutes oh let's go back to to a perimeter player um penny hardaway third pick overall was in in that famous trade um with the invo- he technically dropped by the warriors but then immediately traded to the orlando magic paired with Shaq originally and he came into the league a little, a little older 22 because he had played played those years at memphis so it wasn't quite you yeah. know like the he, he was a i think he was one of the victims of prop 48 do you remember what that is no basically there was a time where if you didn't qualify academically it was called like proposition 48 you basically had you could get into school but you had to like sit out your first year essentially so you couldn't start as a sophomore yeah because he only played he only played two years at memphis before jumping but penny starting you know kind of like grant hill starting yeah, you couldn't in his, even you couldn't even practice actually but cool. with prop 48 so uh, 
so starting yeah. in 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 Penny's second season, age twenty three, but still his second season, All NBA first team, first team, third team on you know or, or Orlando made one finals during that run and they were a consistently competitive team. The his the the thir- his third season, the year Jer- same year Jarek Rose won MVP, though Rose was younger. Twenty four point six per sixty one true shooting, twenty six percent usage, thirty two percent assists. Incredible. Despite you yeah, know, and that that Magic team ninety four ninety five and ninety five ninety six helped by the three point line being a little shorter. Yes, those are two of the greatest offenses of all time. Him and Shaq together, and then the three point shooting of Dennis Scott and Nick Anderson. And then just the the double whammy of ni- for in ninety six ninety seven, Shaq goes to the Lakers, and then Penny starts getting hurt and is I mean basically hurt for the rest of his career. Yeah, I mean there it was microfracture surgery. Then after the ninety nine season, when he actually played all fifty games after the lockout but was terrible he had low usage 49 percent true shooting low offense environment to be sure but just didn't clearly didn't have the same explosion coming back after microfracture then he gets i think it was signed and traded to phoenix for the 99 2000 season great move by orlando because that actually opened up the cap space that allowed them to sign grant hill and tracy mcgrady the next year and he had one decent year playing with jason kidd where he looked okay and then the next year only four games and he was basically done as an effective player did did get traded to the knicks though uh in in the uh stefan marbury deal i think he was yeah he was part of that deal from uh from phoenix after the 04 or i think it was actually during the 04 season but it was mostly salary balance at that point i mean the, the deal that he signed with phoenix was like you know crazy max like seven years 86 million something like that that was that was like basically about as right in the early days of the max contract and so um yeah i mean he was very reliant on his athleticism he played point guard early in his career then he moved to shooting guard or small forward later on he didn't really play point guard for orlando after Shaq left i think they kind of moved everyone down the positional spectrum but even the, the year that he had in 96 97 he had this really good playoff series against miami it wasn't that amazing though and he's already 25 so he's a little older than people realize so i i don't know i'm i'm I can't quite go there to say that without the injuries, we're talking about like an all-time great player. I think Certainly he, I think he would have been a Hall of Famer, but not like the top couple yeah. tiers. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's probably about right. Um, yeah, I don't know that he would have been considered the best guard in basketball for a decade or some or something like that. Um, and it'd be interesting to see how his jump shot would have evolved. Also, um, as as time went on, I mean, he was getting to the point he had. So he was just an incredibly smooth player, really athletic. Um, maybe a little bit more awesome aesthetically than the stats would have indicated but certainly would it was a, a great great player and it, it was he, he would have had a, added a lot to uh highlight reels at a minimum somebody i want to talk about briefly not in the same context as some of the other guys that we've discussed but markel fultz is is a different conversation because i was such a firm believer in how great his fit could have been with that Sixers core and so the big question mark remember with the limitations with Simmons and Embiid was could they get another dynamic ball handler that could space the floor and work well enough with their defensive system now Fultz was the defensive film on him at Washington was some of the worst film I've ever seen of a top level player but there were signs that as if he started caring that he could actually do well in that end but it was offense where he sold it and 
I was reminded a lot. I don't think he had the same kind of ceiling as Kyrie Irving, but Kyrie Irving was the player that college Markel Fultz and high school Markel Fultz, because we saw him at the Hoop Summit, reminded me the most of. And it, like you know, it could be his off the dribble game, great handle, pull up shot was reliable. I I thought that his three was coming along. And that player would have been such a wonderful fit with Simmons and Embiid because it would have given them that other dynamic and somebody who didn't have to have the ball in his hands all the time. So when Simmons did things, it wouldn't sidetrack the offense. It wouldn't sidetrack his game. And the Sixers have never found another Markel Fultz because those guys are few and far between. Yeah, it's interesting. Having seen him play now for Orlando, yes, not with the same jump shot that we thought he was going to have. We thought the jump shot would be a strength that he'd be pulling up off the dribble from three based on what he did at at Washington. I still think even after seeing him in Orlando this year, and and maybe this will change after he has another offseason to work on his shot. It's still only his age 21 season. But I still don't think even if the jump jump shot had been as we hoped he would have been quite the guy that you and I thought he was going to be I think just the the moves um the athleticism hasn't been quite as much as maybe would have been hoped um and, and perhaps just you know it's not like they're running pick and roll with him all the time perhaps just the ability to have him run pick and roll but his feel for finishing doesn't really get to the foul line at all he still hasn't been quite as dynamic as I thought in the non-jump shot aspects of his game offensively still good but not not just like transcendent as far as like his ability to get to the basket fake guys out and would having a jump shot have totally changed that maybe Uh, but uh I'm not sure. I mean, I still haven't seen enough special plays in the non-jump shot areas to make me think like, oh yeah, this guy would have been the guy we thought he was going to be with the number one pick, even if the jump shot had been more along the lines of what yeah, we thought. Yeah, that's fair. But also they didn't need him to be all of that. Like he could have been a closer version to have that jump shot, have sure. you have a little bit. And then because the Sixers didn't need a super high usage third guy, they just needed somebody that defenses would respect who could bring it and also be theoretically the lead, the lead ball handler off the ben, uh, when Ben Simmons was on the bench, you know, like, there were a couple boxes that I, I loved Markel Fultz to check that he that I thought he could have, and then and then it just didn't end up happening. And I think his game would have fit together, you know, like the it would have fit together a lot better with the, with the jump shot. I mean, we've seen this with various guys around the league where it's like if if that if teams fear that, then the other things look better. And I think he w- he would have been he he. It's not a guarantee, but I think he had the potential to be that guy. So we got time for a couple more here. We're definitely taking this to a part two because we're uh, number one. I figure that's fair enough if this is uh, what the listeners wanted. But uh, number two, there's no way we can talk about all these players quickly enough. This is one a guy I didn't know a ton about. I actually did some research on him for this. Is Purvis Ellison? He was probably the first freshman to really be the best player on a national championship team. 1986, Louisville wins the national championship. He stays three more years after that. Crazy to think about about that. Gets drafted, still number one overall in 1989, which is uh, not one of the better drafts uh, in history by by any means. But I think he actually would have been pretty good, and he just suffered all kinds of lower body injuries really only had in the end one healthy season and that was 91 92 or or, or no i'm sorry he had maybe two healthy seasons 
but after that really was not the same athletically. So I went back and, and watched some of his highlights for, for when he was healthy. He gets drafted by Sacramento as a 22-year-old, plays 34 games. He's injured. He's terrible. Traded to Washington. Next year, though, pretty decent. Uh, now, this is as a 24-year-old, so you'd think he'd be right in his prime. Um, solid but not amazing shot blocker. You know, I think had he not gotten injured, he could have at least made a couple of all-star teams, potentially. And think of him, he didn't have the bulk of your conventional centers in that day he kind of had more of like a marcus camby type of body but more offensive game than camby he loved to had a wasn't unbelievably explosive but like had good explosion and mobility really really long arms he loved to get under the basket and reverse dunk it over his head um and he could explode up and dunk on people around the rim come across for some blocks run the floor pretty well he had a a pretty decent jump shot in the 17 foot and in range liked a, a right shoulder high arcing turnaround in the post that worked reasonably well and even then you know the stuff where he had some of his two best years in washington he's already coming off injuries in sacramento so i think he wouldn't have been you know i think he would have made like a few all-star teams i don't think he would have been like a superstar but I, I think he could have been a real good player and just someone as a number one overall pick like no one ever talks about him as because he ended up having years where he played you know he had but he never played after uh, 91-92. He's basically injured every single year. He's, he's playing 49-47. Has one game, one season where he's 69 games. So he just could not stay healthy uh, at all. But yeah, that uh, that 89 draft was uh, was tough. That draft. Number one, Purvis Ellison. Number two, Danny Ferry. Yeah. <laughs> who didn't even play for the Clippers. He went to play in Italy. So, And then the Cavs trade him or, or traded Ron Harper for him, which was not a good trade, as it turned out. Um, number three, Sean Elliott. Number four, Glenn Rice. And then it, it got pretty ugly after that. Um, Elliott and Rice were definitely really the only two probably good picks in that whole top ten. Um, all right, you, you got any, uh, you want to pick one more here before we go? Yeah, uh, let's do, let's do Yao Ming. Uh, we've done a lot of injury plagued centers. Let's, let's add one more to the pile. Uh, Yao, I mean, such, such a, a, a physically dominant big in the early 2000s had, you know, but he only really had four years. He only had four years where he played over 60 games in the NBA and was, and actually had more all NBA appearances, had more all NBAs than that, and that didn't even include his rookie year because he didn't make an all NBA. I mean, but just just a ridiculous yeah, I, I loved his his touch on offense. I thought that he, you know, he had some really he had some good moments on defense and, and as a rebounder. And he I mean they there were some real bright spots playing playing him with T Mac. And I with with Yao, I mean, I wasn't super into the league then. That was when I was getting when I was getting there, but I was just always fascinated by him. Yeah, I mean Yao's been retired basically since 2009 and he's still he would like just be turning 40 right now uh his first season maybe uh, one of like the top five regular season games i've been the most interested in Shaq, of course you know it, it was on top of the world at that point 0203 yao is the number one pick in 02 jay williams is number two also gonna be discussed by the way and Shaq made some racially insensitive comments uh, about him he made all these like kung fu movie noises talking about how he was gonna like kill Yao Ming on the radio and uh, Asian Americans got really justifiably upset about that and those comments came to light shortly before they were gonna play for the first time in Houston and the first two possessions on either end down the court Yao blocked Shaq twice 
and scores on him twice in the post and everyone was just going completely crazy as the game wore on he didn't do much else and Shaq ended up scoring like 31 points and they beat the Rockets in overtime in the end and those guys eventually developed a more respectful relationship but that was very clear that Yao was extremely skilled maybe the best free throw shooting big ever he took the technical free throws for Houston I think basically his whole career and he shot you know like 87 percent from the line as a big I mean he just his jump shot was awesome and there's just no way to stop him other than just trying to like body him up he also had like a really unstoppable jump hook in the post yeah if he uh, played now he yeah. probably could have had the Marcus Ole set shot three. Oh, for sure yeah i mean there i remember before the draft chad ford talked about how he did a workout against this like schlub center from oregon and he was just like draining nba threes so while the chinese development system is certainly has a lot to be criticized about just lots of rote stuff and overworking guys and not really developing creativity or passion for the game in yao's case i mean it made him into an incredible shooter and he was very, very difficult to stop in the post. You had to double team him, but he was slow. I mean, he struggled to run the floor. He might even be remembered a little bit differently. They would have made it almost certainly to a conference finals in 2007, but they had this really bad matchup against the Jazz because the Jazz had Momin Okur, who would hang out at the three-point line. Yao couldn't guard him. And then, so he had to guard Carlos Boozer, who was still way too quick for him as well. And that, like the those McGrady-Yao teams, they end up losing in game seven. Um, but he also was probably underrated defensively just in the amount of space that he took up at 7-6 he didn't have quite a commensurate wingspan with that but he still was just a mountain inside um you know I, I mean we saw probably the best of him you know that's the only thing he's he's his last year was 0809 he hurts his foot for essentially the last time in the playoff series against the Lakers maybe they win that playoff series against the Lakers it went seven anyway I think it was game three that he hurt himself but uh yeah both he and McGrady basically are done after that 0809 season and so I, I'm not sure how that would have changed I mean Houston then goes into a rebuilding they end up getting James Harden we would have changed the the league a lot I, I don't know that he and McGrady get to a championship ever though if they're not injured yeah, I, I think you're right that we at least got the pretty the pretty solid general contours of, of what of what Yao was. So that that part might be a little bit more similar to Grant Hill, even though uh Grant was a little bit older when his injuries hit than Yao was. Yeah. So yeah, I mean he was a solid all star player, you know, lower end all NBA. I don't think he was it would have been a Hall of Famer just based on his NBA career, I think. But you know, probably not I don't know that he ever would have been a top ten player in the league, maybe lower end of the top ten if I really went back and looked at it. But he also he just kind of had some limitations and and i think he the way the game was going other than the fact that he could have shot threes defensively i think he would have started to become more marginalized as he got a little older yeah team teams teams were getting better at taking advantage of limited mobility bigs at that round that time yeah i mean and any big who could shoot at all was just gonna be able to get a jumper on him at any time um you know i mean he's i would i would say his mobility was maybe you know better than bobon's but not much better yeah i mean if you think of bobon with just a much more skilled shooting game um and probably better help instincts maybe a little better shot blocker he's taller too than boy seven six instead of one's like seven three but um and i would say yeah you know, i would say he has a uh, he had a more developed post-up game too yeah oh oh well yeah obviously yeah. um yeah in terms of like the turnaround he had this just unblockable turnaround jumper like he shoot it from like six feet behind his head it was unbelievable um okay let's do one more here 
This is an old school one. Tiny Archibald is famous for, as a 24-year-old, he leads the NBA in both scoring and assists. You know, Oscar Robertson type of impact. Looks like he's on the way to maybe being a, an all-time great player. And then he injures his Achilles tendon in 73-74. Only plays 35 games that year. Comes back, averages 27 points and 6.8 assists, but didn't quite have the same level of quickness. And then he basically was in purgatory for years and years gained a bunch of weight tore his achilles also had a, a really bad foot injury and so the late 70s are basically a total lost period for him and then he has a second act with the celtics gets a couple years there wins a championship as maybe their second best player in 1981 when it, when he got back in shape uh, but then wasn't really able to go on much beyond his early 30s uh, as a small guard so that's one where he could have been one of the best players in the 1970s and he really only had probably three or four great seasons yeah, and so that the it's crazy for that 72-73 season. He averaged 34 points, 11.4 assists in 46 minutes a game. Yeah. So uh, 2 years later when he when he averages 26 and 8, that's like way down. Now, I mean those teams didn't have the greatest offenses didn't have a lot with him you know how much did his play really help but i mean to just be to be that type of a heliocentric player at a time when you didn't have modern spacing you know really oscar was probably the only guy who had played like that before tiny archibald in terms of just running everything through him how, how do how are those teams offensively i forget i, I looked it up and I, now i can't remember. So the year he the year he averaged thirty four and eleven, they had the number one offensive rating in the league, and they were at a they had a, a one a one hundred offensive rating was number one in the league, and they were dead last in defense. <laughs> what was their record that year? Thirty six and twenty six. Sorry, thirty six and forty six. Uh, the coached by Bob Cousy actually in seventy two seventy three. Yeah, and I mean, so you look at the offensive rating of a hundred. That's the number one offense at that point. You know, no three point line, of course, and he's fifty six percent true shooting very efficient so clearly and he's playing since he's playing 46 minutes a game it's basically the team offensive rating is his offensive rating yep so yeah clearly he had a huge effect on god that's just insane 3600 minutes that year um (laughs) almost 37 yeah and so really then he was a much lower usage guy maybe it's not fair to say that he was the second best guy on that 81 celtics team that's probably not true uh but they had a a deep team other than bird as well but yeah he he matured into a more efficient player his usage is all the way down to 17 percent. we don't have data to see where it was in 1973 but i mean i'm guessing it's like it's got to be like 30 at that point so and and then especially when you consider the the amount he's got the ball in his hands for all these assists as well here, here's a stat for you tiny yeah. archibald in that season he made a thousand and twenty eight field goals and there are only 18 player seasons in nba history where a player made a thousand a thousand or more field goals in a season will chamberlain has seven of those 18 <laughs> let me see if i can get all of them sure how many players is it eight all right so jordan and i've already given you two what is that i've already given you two of the players okay jordan 1987 has got to be on there. yep he did an 80 in uh will be the final he did an 86 87 87 88 and 89 90 um kobe bryant 2006 nope oof oh yeah i guess the threes maybe that's what uh 
No, this is yeah, this this be... twos and threes together. Yeah, but yeah, you got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I mean, when I, cause I was thinking like the number of points a game that he scored. Um, yeah, and guys were playing fewer minutes. Point. Um, hmm. here's one thing. So Jordan and MJ are the only two people to do it more than twice. J- Jordan and Will. Yeah, mean, Jordan and Will. Sorry. And and, and we got Tiny Archibald yes. too. Right. So that's that's three that's of the three eight. of the eight. Rick Barry. Yes, twice. 66 Fuck 67 yeah. on the san francisco warriors and then 74 75 on the golden state warriors when they win the title do, do i have a chance for the rest of them they're all hall of famers i think you I, could i, I think there i think there are two other ones that i wouldn't be shocked for you to get and the other two would be harder um all right, I'm gonna, oh, I'm oh here, here's a, here's a pretty good hint only one more yeah. player season occurred since the since the three-point with a made three-pointer in it with an attempted three-pointer i think they're they, they might all predate the three-point line other than one um alan iverson 2002 no Okay, I'll, yeah, I'll give yeah. I'll give you the rest of them. Um, <laughs> oh, come on! Okay, just because you're getting bored doesn't sure. mean the listeners are. Okay, two more. You get two more guesses. <laughs> okay, okay. All right, I'm just trying to think of who like the big scores were in the sixties. Um, Elgin Baylor. Yes. 62-63. All right. Someone so, we might talk about in part two, by the way. Um, I mean, Oscar and Jerry West are two obvious ones. Neither of them did it. Yeah. Well, I, I was just, just talking through the, the process. I know. I'm just letting you but, know. But thank thank you for helping me. Um, Kareem? Twice. Both times on the Bucks. 70-71 and 71-72. Yeah, because he had a year where he averaged like 35 a game. Because, yeah, you needed guys who were playing a shit ton of minutes, only two-point field goals, not that many free throws, hopefully, and averaging, like, 35 a game. <laughs> so, oh, okay, um, the last two I'll give you, because these are the ones that I thought would be really hard. Um, okay. Bob McAdoo in 74-75. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. That would have taken me a while, but I, I probably should have gotten that. And then George Gervin in 79-80. Yeah. Gervin, the only other one, uh, so he he made a whopping 32 three-pointers out of his 1,024 made field goals. Actually, more than I would have expected. The, that was, like, the first year of the three-pointers. The line. most made field goals. So remember I said there were only 18 players seasons where a player made over a thousand in 61 62 wilt made almost 1600 <laughs> that was the that was the year where he uh i believe that's the year where he averaged 50 yeah one of the most overrated players of all time that's uh what hollinger and i concluded uh i think he was number six on like the espn rankings that came out a couple days ago that's uh that's a few places too I've. um all right this is this has been fun i promise part two will actually get back to the subject of this but hey you know we can freeform it here we're in we're in month three of no basketball now i think we can uh we can take it a little easier so yeah we'll be back tomorrow to uh finish this out and maybe maybe we'll even do like a top three each uh, as well of our uh personal players who never had the careers that, that we would have hoped for them uh you have anything to talk about before we go i'll have a collaborative piece on the atlanta hawks coming out at the athletic that should be out on thursday and then um have a few other things that are in the hopper that aren't quite done and working on a piece on designated veteran contracts and then a few other things you can keep an eye out for you all have heard me talk many times about my wife here on the show you might recall that she's a yoga teacher and i wanted to let you know that she is starting her own streaming service called yoga with ashlyn a-i-s-l-i-n-n that's how you spell it and if you enjoy our meticulous data-oriented approach here on dunked on either you or a significant other will find this to be the best streaming service there is for yoga unlike apparently a lot of teachers she spends about an hour planning the sequence for each class Why is that important? Well, it helps you get the most out of every second that you're on the mat, whether it's one of her quick 10-minute refresh classes or one of her super hardcore inversion labs. This detailed sequencing makes all the difference 
whether you're looking for injury prevention, getting into that really hard pose you haven't been able to master, or just getting your mind right at the end of a really hard day. She's got over 130 classes, and that library is growing at one to two classes per week. She'll even take requests from members on new classes that they like. You can search by poses, by body part if you're feeling something is tight. She's really built an impressive platform. And whether you want to get into yoga more yourself or you know someone who is really into yoga and is looking for a way to get a lot better, check out Yoga with Ashlyn. There's a free seven-day trial. You can either go to yogawithashlyn.com or there's a link to her service in the description of this podcast. That's yogawithashlyn.com, A-I-S-L-I-N-N, or just click the link in the podcast description. 